All right, we are in, of course, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10. We are still working our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, This is kind of a milestone in our study of the Gospel of Mark, uh, simply because this is sermon number 40 in the Gospel of Mark. I'm either, I'm not sure why I preach so many longer messages these days, but uh, Uh, Maybe I'm seeing more in the scripture. I hope that that's the issue there. But this is sermon number 40, and we are in chapter 10 of Mark. We still have six more chapters to go. And it's fitting then, being this is kind of a fascinating milestone, uh, it it is fitting for us to read a milestone statement by the Lord Jesus Christ that's in our text today. And that statement is, nothing is impossible with God. We know that truth, and and we we know that, and Jesus himself said it here, nothing is impossible with God. And of course, we have to always remember, also remember that God is never inconsistent with his character. He never operates outside of of his attributes, as we call them. Uh, His attributes meaning the the, the qualities that make God who he is. Uh, There is a long list of God's attributes. He is eternal. He is infinite, meaning there's no no end to to who God is and all that he is. He is unchanging. Uh, Theologians use the big term immutable. They say he's immutable. God is Unchanging, so he's eternal, he's infinite, he's unchanging, he is trustworthy, he is incomparable, meaning that nothing can compare to him. He is unequaled, <clears throat> meaning there, there is, is, is no one like him. He is just. And I know you know the three omnis. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omnipresent, meaning His presence is everywhere. He is omniscient, meaning He knows everything, past and present and future. Plus, God knows all of the potential possibilities. We don't have time to explore that, but I can demonstrate to you from Scripture that God not only knows the past, the present, and the future, God knows all of the potential possibilities. And so when a person stands before God in judgment, they can't say, well, you know, God, if the situation had been different, I would have done this. And God would say, well, no, really, you wouldn't have. If the situation was different, you would have done this. Because God not only knows what we have done, and he knows what we are going to do, God knows what we would have done, and what we could have done. God knows all of the potential possibilities. His omniscience, when you really think about it and study that through the New Testament, God's omniscience is absolutely mind-blowing. So God is eternal, He's infinite, He's unchanging, He's trustworthy, He's incomparable, He's unequaled, He's just, He's omnipotent, He's omnipresent, He's omniscient, He's he's sovereign, He's the supreme ruler of the universe, He is immortal, He never grows old, He can never die, He is holy, He is gracious. And when you talk about God's grace or His graciousness, that includes His goodness and His kindness and His mercy and His love. And that is just a short list of who God is and what God is. We call those the attributes of God. And God will never operate outside of His character. He cannot lie. He cannot cheat. He cannot deceive. He will never cease to exist. It is impossible for him to operate outside of his character and his attributes. God can never not be God. 
Now, I know that's not the greatest sentence from the standpoint of English grammar, but it is the best way I know to, to, to express that truth. God can never not be God. So when we say nothing is impossible with God, we are saying that, that anything that God wants to do that is within his will and his purposes, he can do it. But he will never operate outside of his will. He will never operate outside of his character. He will never deny what his will is. He will never go against his purposes. He will always be everything that he is, and he will always be everything that he has always been. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar got a grip on this truth when he said of God, he does his will in the armies of heaven, and no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what are you doing? See, God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. Nothing that is within his will and purposes is impossible with God. Now, that is obviously not true about us. There are many things that are impossible for us. We can't fly without an airplane. We can't live underwater without a submarine. If you like some of the funnier things, you can't lick your elbow. Don't try in church, please. You can't, you can't sneeze with your eyes open. The famous World War II era British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, he once joked, I can't climb a wall that's leaning away from me, and I can't kiss a girl who's leaning away from me. Some things are impossible. Or he said, I can't climb a wall that's leaning toward me. And I can't, can't kiss a girl who's leaning away from me. There are some things that are just absolutely impossible. Now, in our, in our modern psychologized world, we often tell our young people that they can do anything they want to do and be anything they want to be. But you know, that, that really isn't true. And if we say those things, we need to qualify what we mean. If you can't ace Algebra 1, you're probably not going to work for NASA. There, there, there are all kinds of limitations on, on what we are able to do. There are limitations of talent and ability. There are limitations of opportunity. There are limitations of finances. There are limitations of time. We all understand that. Life is full of limitations. There are some things that we are simply incapable of doing. We don't have the capacity, intellectually or physically, to just do anything we feel like doing. And believing that you can do it doesn't alter the fact that you can't do it if you can't do it. That sort of foolish thinking deceives people into having exaggerated opinions of themselves. As someone once joked, the main cause of injury in old men is them thinking that they are still young men. We do have limitations. I'm surprised nobody laughed at me when I said that. So, of course, maybe there's not just me and Tom are the only old guys here today. So, but yeah, the main cause of injury in old men is them thinking they're young men. Why? Because we have limitations. I can't pick up what I used to pick up. I can't run as fast as I used to run. I can't do things I used to do. We all have limitations. God doesn't, but we do. I started playing the trumpet in the fifth grade, played throughout high school. I took a semester of trumpet lessons at the, at the college level. I played in a trumpet trio for a few months. I still have the trumpet my parents bought me for Christmas in 1976. And as many of you know, I still make occasional efforts to attempt to play here on special occasions. 
At the peak of my trumpet years in college, I was practicing seven hours a week minimum. I could play all over the scale. I had tone. I had stamina. I was feeling very good about my playing ability, but I could never triple tongue, and I could barely double tongue with clarity. Just, just could not do it. Did not have the capacity. I worked on it. I worked on it. I worked on it. I could never master it. Now, if you don't know what I mean by double tonguing and triple tonguing, no, no worries. I won't try to explain it to you today. But doing internet search sometime for the song called Bugler's Holiday, and you will hear some fantastic triple-tonguing by a trumpet trio. Triple-tonguing in perfect sync in, th in, in, in three-part harmony. It is, it is amazing. If you like the trumpet, it will wow you. And at the peak of my trumpet years, with hours of practice attempts, I could never master it. I told myself I could do it, ha ha ha. My music professor thought that I could possibly master it, but I never could. I could not do it. And every time I listen to Bugler's Holiday, I've got it on a CD. Every time I listen to that, I am totally impressed, and I am also totally, thoroughly reminded of my limitations. Nothing is impossible with God, but there is a very, very long list of things that are impossible for me and for you. But as we read and study our text this morning, I want you to rejoice that within the will and purpose of the almighty sovereign ruler of the universe, there is nothing that is impossible. We read the entire section here in Mark 10 last Sunday, then we dealt with the first few verses, so, so to get the context of today's message, I want to read the entire section once again. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, and of course, that's Jesus, one came running, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And we spent a significant amount of time unpacking those verses a couple weeks ago. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. And Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions 
and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. As we saw two weeks ago when we uh, were studying this earlier ch- chapter, earlier pa- verses there in this chapter, these, this very impressive young man who seemed to have a genuine interest in eternal life came to Jesus with what seemed to be a serious, honest question. But our all-knowing Savior could see into his heart, he could see into his motives, and he redirected his thoughts to the real issue that he had not acknowledged his sin and his God was his wealth. He thought he had kept the Ten Commandments since he was a kid, but Jesus pointed out his fatal flaw, that he was not keeping the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And when Jesus challenged him to liquidate all of his assets and give it away and pick up his cross and become a real disciple, a real follower of Jesus, it kind of popped his bubble of self-righteousness and it crushed him and he dropped his head and he walked away. He could not face the reality of what he actually worshipped. Now remember that Jesus did not condemn him for owning multiple properties. He didn't bash him for being financially successful. He simply pointed out to him the idol that was in his heart. Was he really interested in eternal life? Well, uh, he was only interested in eternal life just if it didn't involve liquidating any of his property. He was basically saying, I want heaven on my terms. I, I want Jesus as, as an, an add-on to all my stuff. And if I have to make a choice, then I walk away from Jesus and I keep my stuff. As we said last week here, or two, two weeks ago, he was, he was a self-focused seeker, like many, many, many people today. They are not truly seeking the Lord in order to have a, a relationship with Him. They are only seeking the Lord in order to, to, in order to get what they want out of Him. They're not acknowledging their sin. They're not acknowledging their need for, for forgiveness. They're not turning their focus to, to eternity. They're just seeking God for what they think he, he can do for them. I want money. I want land. I want a better job. I want stuff. I want happiness. I want health. And if all this Jesus stuff helps me reach all of my goals, then I'll add him onto the rest of my life whenever it's convenient, as long as it works out for me. A lot of people out there like that today. They are self-focused seekers who are trading their eternal destiny for temporary fulfillment with the things of the world. And that is the context of Jesus' next words to the crowd that was around him, his disciples, and undoubtedly many others. Look, if you would, back at verse 23 again. Let me just read a couple of verses here. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? Now any time that we are studying the Bible, it's always good to study to understand what is happening in what we call its historical context. And what do we mean, or what we mean by this is, who is speaking, who is being spoken to, how would the original hearers of these words understand this, How would the original first century readers of this passage understand this? Why were Jesus' words so so shocking? 
When he says it's almost it's virtually impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, they were shocked. Why would they be shocked? Well, why were they wondering who could be saved if salvation was such an obstacle for wealthy people? Well, in the context of first century Israel, according to their theology, you were wealthy if you were blessed by God. If you were poor, you were probably cursed by God, or at least he didn't like you very much. If you were healthy, you were blessed by God. If you were sick, you were on God's naughty list. And, you know, that theology is still very much alive and well today. There are some TV preachers, probably on, on Christian to supposedly Christian stations right now, who are preaching that theology. That if, you, if, if you're rich, it's because you're blessed by God. If you're poor, you've been cursed by God. If you're healthy, you're blessed by God. If you're sick, then you're on God's naughty list somehow. That is wrong theology. As the book of Job clearly teaches, as well, as well as many other scriptures. But the idea was that a very religious person who was very wealthy would easily be able to enter the kingdom of God because he had so much money he could buy all of the animal sacrifices that he wanted to buy. He could buy as many spotless lambs as he wanted, whenever he wanted. He could offer a temple sacrifice every day. He could offer morning and evening sacrifices six days a week if he wanted to. He had the money. The rabbis also taught for generations that with alms, one purchases his redemption. Now, we don't use the word alms very much, A-L-M-S. We don't use that word very often today. Uh, but, but the word alms simply means money or material goods that you give to the poor to help them in their poverty. The rabbis had taught for generations that with alms, one could purchase his redemption. Let me just read you a few of the writings of the rabbis. This is one. It is good to do alms rather than to treasure up gold, for alms deliver from death, and this will purge away every sin. Another writer says, alms will atone for sin. Another one says, almsgiving is more excellent than all offerings and is equal to the whole law. In other words, they had taught for generations, the Jewish rabbis, who did not know the Old Testament should have, but they did not. But they had taught that if you give alms, you have virtually kept the whole law and you are delivering yourself from the condemnation of hell. So according to the teachings of the rabbis in that era, how do you enter the kingdom of God? You give money. Wrong theology, but very commonly believed. That was their system. Offer a bunch of sacrifices and give, a, give lots of alms. So when Jesus says... It is really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They all go into shock. What? You're kidding me. I mean, if it's hard for them, what hope is there for the rest of us? That's why he says, who then can be saved? I mean, I can hardly offer to, I, I can hardly afford to buy a sacrifice a couple of times a year. What hope is there for me? If the rich guys can't, can't buy enough sacrifices and give enough money away to get to heaven, I mean, I'm, I'm sunk. And Jesus adds a very, uh, very interesting and additional interesting statement that's, that's often misunderstood. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> now, there are various ideas that have been floated about this statement. One is that there was a, a small gate in many city walls that was big enough for a, for a pedestrian, for people walking, but not big enough for camels, and it was called the Eye of the Needle because it was a narrow gate. 
If the main city gate had closed for the night, then, then they would say, this, this story goes, you could unload the packs from your camels and force them down on their knees and make them crawl through the needle gate. It was very hard, but you could shove them through. Very interesting illustration with lots of nice applications, but there's not one shred of evidence from history or archaeology that any such gate ever existed. <clears throat> and and the, the story appears to have come from a commentary that, uh, on the Gospels that was written in the 12th century. It just keeps getting repeated and repeated and repeated. I've read it many times over the years. Uh, another idea is, the, is that the Greek word for camel and the Greek word for rope are just one letter different, and that some scribe accidentally copied the wrong letter, and it should read like you're trying to thread a needle with a rope, which is also impossible. However, this same phrase appears in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and it's highly unlikely that a scribe made exactly the same mistake in exactly the same place in all three Gospels. And there are over 5,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts of the New Testament, so it would be very easy to figure out that sort of mistake if it had, if it had actually occurred. So we're left with the obvious option that Jesus said exactly what he intended to say, that people whose trust is in their financial assets will not be entering the kingdom of God. He said it's like shoving a camel through the eye of a needle. It can't possibly happen. Now to those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, and, and we who understand some Bible theology, that's not really that shocking of a statement to us. Because we understand that it's very easy for wealth to give a person a false sense of security. It's very easy for wealth to give a person a sense of self-reliance and self-sufficiency and self-fulfillment. And the more that you have, the easier it is to give in to self-gratification and self-indulgence. If a person can buy just about anything they want to buy and go just about anywhere they want to go, anytime they want to go, then it's very easy to develop a false sense of security. You hear it in advertisements all the time. Protect your hard-earned money from government policies. Invest in gold. What are they doing? They are appealing to a person's false sense of security. They are they are, are are appealing to a person's belief that, that 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 money and all of our assets can somehow protect us from everything. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that God does not condemn wealth. In fact, the Scripture indicates this, that material blessings come from God. Solomon said in Proverbs ten, he said, "It is the blessing of the Lord that makes one wealthy." But Solomon also said a few chapters later in, in, in Proverbs twenty three. He said, riches can take wings like an eagle and fly away. You know that Job had over 11,000 head of livestock. He's a multimillionaire by our standards. And, and who knows how many hired men he had to oversee the herds. You also know that God allowed Satan to afflict Job, and he lost it all in one day. All of it. 11,000 head of livestock. Gone in one day. You also know that over the next number of years, God gave it all back to him again. And you all remember Job's famous words, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So when we study through the scripture, we know that God never condemns wealth, but he very clearly says over and over and over again, don't you dare trust it. Jesus says exactly that right here when he repeats himself in verse 24. And he says how hard it is for those, and notice the phrase, who trust in riches 
That's a key phrase. It, it, it isn't the money, it's the people who are trusting it. And how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's very easy for wealth to give us a false sense of security, as I said a moment ago. Well, we can develop this sense of self-reliance and self-sufficiency and self-fulfillment. And, and the more I have, I can, I can give in to self-gratification and self-indulgence. Just, just read the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll see Solomon talking about just buying anything he wanted, any time he wanted. And it never satisfied his heart. The Apostle Paul wrote, 1 Timothy 6.17, he said, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to trust in uncertain riches, but trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So if God blesses you with material things, enjoy it. Thank God for it. Use it for His glory, but don't you dare fall in love with it. Don't trust it. Don't rely on it. Don't count on it to, to deliver you from all of the world's problems. Trust God and manage whatever He gives you for His glory. You see, it's not totally impossible for wealthy people to come to Christ. So how do you know? Jesus said it was impossible. Oh, but He said with men it's impossible, verse 27, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And so it's not totally impossible for wealthy people to come to Christ, but it can be very hard. Why, you say? Because, because they have no sense of need. They think they can fix everything with their assets. They think they can solve all their problems with their checkbooks. So Jesus said it is hard for the wealthy to get into the kingdom because they don't think they need God. They think they can fix all their problems with their assets. And his hearers, the people listening to him say this, who, who believe that money scores big forgiveness points with God, they are shocked. They are, in fact, they, they are quite frightened. As they said, who then can be saved? They say, I, I, mean, I mean, if the rich guys can't get in, I can't get in. Because they're thinking the guys buy all the sacrifices, give all the alms. You know, they can, can somehow earn favor with God with, with, with all of their money and so forth. And so they're, they're, they're in shock that Jesus would say such a thing. But then, of course, Jesus expresses that, that great hope of the ages. With God, all things are, are possible. With people, it is impossible. You can't do it on your own. You can't inherit eternal life on your own merits. You can't buy your way into the kingdom of God. However, all things are possible with God. Some of you may remember the other place where this phrase occurs. The angel Gabriel said it to the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1 regarding the virgin birth of Jesus. Because Mary says, how, how can I become pregnant? I've never known a man. And she said, and the angel Gabriel said to her, with, with men it's impossible, but with God all things, are, all, all things are possible. You see, the virgin birth was a human impossibility. A child cannot be born without a human father. But he could be born by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. So in the same way, a sinner cannot be born into the family of God without a supernatural work of the Spirit of God. And it's very interesting, those two statements are made in these two contexts. 
One having to do with the virgin birth of Christ, which is, which is a divine miracle from above. The other having to do with the salvation of a sinner, which is a divine miracle from above. Only God can do this mighty work of forgiving a sinner and bringing him into the family of God. So nothing is impossible with God. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And let me repeat that. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. So if you have friends and family whom you love, never give up praying for them. Never give up witnessing to them. Nothing is impossible with God. You may be tempted to think, oh, they will never come to Christ. They, they just seem too hard or too disinterested or too preoccupied. Or they may be struggling with addictions. Or they may be in love with money. Or they may think that they can handle everything on their own. Or they may foolishly think that they are good enough or religious enough for God to accept them. They may seem, you may have people that you know and love who may seem so far from God that it just seems impossible that they would ever come to Christ. With men, this is impossible. But not with God, Jesus says. For with God... All things are possible. So keep praying and keep witnessing and keep faithfully following Jesus because you never know how God will use you in their life. But then Peter brings up an issue. Of course, it's Peter. you got to love Peter. He just blurts out whatever he's thinking. And he's probably asking what everybody else is, is thinking, but they're afraid to ask. He says there in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. He says, Oh, what about us, Lord? We're, we're not like this young, rich synagogue ruler who loved his financial assets more than you. When you called us to follow you, we followed you. We did leave everything to follow you. And he is correct, if you remember from our early chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus was walking by the seashore. He sees Peter and Andrew and James and John. And he says, follow me. And they left their nets and they left their boats and, and they left their families and they followed the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter is exactly right in, in, in his question. He's kind of saying, what about us, Lord? I mean, we, we've left everything and followed you. Because we're not like this rich young ruler. And it's, it's a legitimate question. And then Jesus gives him this very encouraging, blessed reminder. And I, and I call these last, these last few verses here that we just read, I, I'll call it three, or blessings in three eras. An era meaning a time period. Blessings in three eras. Jesus says in verse 29, Jesus entered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. In this life, right now, a person who truly follows the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what they inherit? They inherit the family of God. You see, you may have earthly, biological family who reject you, or ignore you, 
or they are irritated with you, or they can't understand you, or they cut their ties with you in some way, or they resist your presence in some way, all because you have chosen to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. You have left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or land for my sake in the Gospels. And I know, I know a lot of people, maybe some of you here, you've got some people in your biological family, some people you've got a blood connection to you, they cannot figure out what in the world is wrong with you and why are you pursuing this Jesus stuff. Why do you want to go to Whitetail Baptist Church? Why? I mean, what do you guys actually do there anyway? I mean, I mean, I mean, this, this is kind of crazy. I mean, I mean, you're just you're not like you used to be. I mean, well, well what in the world's happened to you? And th- that has been happening for the last two thousand years. In fact, Jesus very very clearly said it would, because those who do not have the Spirit of God do not understand the things of the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul wrote in First Corinthians two. And so you start pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ and some people that you know and some people that you love and some people that you are, 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 are connected to, maybe very closely, are going to look at you and think you have lost your mind. And Jesus says, of course Peter says, we left it all, Lord, we followed you. And Jesus says, well, yes and no. Because he said, any of you who have left anything, you have forsaken anything for my sake in the Gospels. He said, you're going to get a hundredfold in this life of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and lands. You see, in Christ, you inherit millions of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles in the Lord. And however you may meet them in this life, there will be an instant connection. It's happened to Carol and me on on many occasions. In our missionary travels, we we know people all over the country who treat us like family. We don't see them very often, but there is an instant reconnection when we do. Many years ago, about almost, I guess about nine years ago now, we had the opportunity to go to Hong Kong, see our son-in-law's family and see where he, where he grew up there. And we were on the subway, 200 feet underground. They call it the MTR, Mass Transit Rail. And we were down in this, uh, we were on the subway and we were standing there kind of, you know, talking very, very quietly as you're zooming along. And suddenly this sharp looking Asian guy in a suit says to us in perfect American English, Hey, where are you guys from? (laughs) And we told him and we began talking and asked him, so what are you doing here? And Hong, oh, I just, oh, I don't, I don't live here. He said, I just, I'm just (laughs) conducting business here. I said, well, what do you do? And he told me, he said, I, I work for, I, I don't know if you ever heard of so-and-so. He stated the guy's name, and, and he said, I, uh, I work for his ministry. I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I was just watching one of his videos last week. And I suddenly realized, he knew the Lord, I knew the Lord, he's working in ministry, we're working in, in ministry, and here we are on the other side of the planet, 200 feet underground, roaring along at 60 miles an hour on a subway, and to make an instant connection with a guy I've never seen before and will never see again. Why? Because he's in the family of God, and we're in the family of God. And I'll tell you, it has happened to Caroline over and over and over and over. You, you, you go places, you, you run into people, God brings you together with people, and, and they know the Lord, and you know the Lord, and there is, there is an instant connection immediately. They're like family. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Yeah, he says, you may have biological family who has rejected you. 
You may have biological family who don't want anything to do with you, but he said, in this life right now, you inherit the family of God. Then there's millions of us. That's blessing number one. I said blessing in three eras, that's blessing number one. When you truly follow Jesus Christ, you inherit the family of God in this life on this earth. There may be persecutions that go with it, to what Jesus said. But we inherit the family of God. Blessing number two. Now Mark and Luke don't record this, but in Matthew's account, Matthew 19, Jesus tells his 12 apostles that they are going to rule and reign with him during the millennium. He doesn't call it the millennium. He uses the term the regeneration, the remaking of things. But but we know from the book of Revelation that we're all going to rule and reign with our Savior and King, Jesus Christ, during his thousand-year reign on the earth. Every person who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, now in this, in this era right now, they're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ on this earth. And Jesus said to, in, in the Gospel of Matthew there that the twelve apostles were going to reign over the twelve tribes of Israel during the millennial kingdom. That's blessing number one. We, we inherit the family of God in this life. Blessing number two, we, we get to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ during his thousand-year millennial kingdom. And then blessing number three, Jesus said it here at the very end of verse 28, in the age to come, eternal life, we get heaven for all of eternity. Troubles and heartaches and trials and possible rejection in this life we might get, but we get heaven forever. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul was describing our troubles and trials in this life. And he called them, and this is his quote from 2 Corinthians 4, he called them our light and momentary afflictions. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Wonderful thoughts. Jesus says, blessing number one, whatever you've forsaken for me in this life, you're going to inherit the family of God. Blessing number two, you're going to rule and reign with me for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. Blessing number three, you get heaven for all of eternity. There, there, there is nothing in this life that we sacrifice for Jesus that he will not repay. Blessings in three eras. We inherit the family of God in the here and now. We rule and reign with Christ in the coming earthly kingdom. And we inherit heaven forever in the blessed presence of our Savior. 68 years ago in January, just a couple weeks ago was the anniversary of this, 68 years ago, in the jungles of Ecuador, five young American missionaries were martyred as they attempted to reach for Christ a tribe that had never been touched by the outside world. One of those young men named Jim Elliott, he had kept a journal for many years. And after his death, his wife Elizabeth Elliott edited and, and, and published his journals. I've got it on my shelf at home, the journals of Jim Elliott. One of his most famous quotes from his journal, which of course when he wrote it, he had no idea it would ever be read by millions. It was his private personal prayer journal as he was doing his Bible studies and writing down various notes. And he, was, he, he, had, he had no clue that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, <laughs> would read this. But his wife included this in his journal. And this is his phrase. It's kind of become one of the most famous things he ever wrote. He is no fool 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What a great thought. He, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, there, there is nothing in this life that we sacrifice for Jesus that he will not repay. Blessings in three eras that are coming to those who are following the Lord Jesus. May God give us this eternal perspective as we walk his path in this lost world. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Lord, it is so easy for us, as you know, to get so wrapped up in all the things of this life. And it usually takes some very serious traumas, some heartaches, some troubles, some trials, something that will jar us to, to give us a little bit of an eternal perspective. That this world is not all there is, and all the things of this world will soon be gone. So Lord, help us to live for eternity. And remember these immortalized words by Jim Elliot. We aren't fools when we give up things that we can't keep anyway in order to gain things that we can never lose. As Jesus said, we have life everlasting. We inherit the family of God. We rule and reign with you for a thousand years during your earthly kingdom. And we have heaven for all of eternity. Everything that any person had ever sacrificed for you, you always repay it. In this life or the next. So may we, Lord, live with this eternal focus, this eternal perspective, as we try to walk your path in this lost and dying, confused world. And we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.